Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 249 and part one of my conversation with the creator of Heartland Marimba, a marimbist, percussionist, publisher, and arts administrator, Matthew Coley. Let's get right to it. I met Matthew a few years ago through his appearance at Mizzou when he was giving a clinic and performance on marimba. And he was also doing some chamber playing with my colleague and frequent podcast guest, Megan Arns. I enjoyed his presentation and had wanted to have him on the podcast for some time, so here we go. Matthew's been blazing a path for many years, primarily through his promotion of the concert Marimba. He started the Heartland Marimba entity a number of years ago, which includes solo, chamber, and publishing as part of the deal. He's also been actively involved as an entrepreneur, freelancer, arts manager, and for a bit, a full-time college professor. He's been very involved in creating community cultures that love the marimba, and you'll get to understand more about that through this interview. As you can tell, there's a lot to cover with Matthew's career. And so, yet again, we go to another two-parter. Next week, we'll hear more about his years as a college professor and our final questions segment. But this time around, you'll hear all about the Heartland Marimba organization, his freelancing career, growing up in Southern Virginia, and studying with Mark Ford, Michael Burrett, and Shi'i Wu. And because he started at East Carolina University when I was a student at UNC Greensboro, we get some North Carolina percussion talk. So stay tuned for that, and here we go. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on June 25th, 2021, and it begins right now. I, I, I was listening to some of the episodes. I really like the, um, I don't know the podcaster's terms for all this, like the sound world that you create, like the I don't, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to co- go for here, but I like the, what you're doing. So, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Clear, clean, like cool sound to it, like whatever uh, processing you put on that, or if you do any, I don't know. I do very little actually on that. It's, it's uh, whenever I've switched over to Zoom, which has been like the last, I don't know, like most of this year, I guess. Well, I appreciate hearing that. I, I w- I'm yeah. always concerned about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was fun to listen to. And like, you know, sometimes I, because I listen to podcasts in the car a lot. Yeah. And the levels will be kind of odd, you know, from both ends. And you can hear one person, you can't hear the other. And like, all that sounded really good. And, um, you know, the the content and stuff is really great. So thanks for asking me to be on. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, no, I, I really appreciate hearing that. Whenever there's been imbalances, I've really I've tried like, and I it's always one of those things where I I, I don't know totally how it's going to work from from like when we're talking yeah. versus uh, when I do adjust if I if I know that there's definitely an imbalance um, versus times when when it just sounds like it sounds really clear and I do because like I and I listen back to my own. For like just to basically to be a critic, you know. Uh, uh. 
Matthew, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are right now. Things have been kind of different lately, as you know, (laughs) with the uh, pandemic. But um, so mainly what I do now is work as a traveling soloist and chamber musician. Um, And then a big portion of my day and and effort is towards Heartland Marimba, which is a nonprofit organization um, that I direct. And so that that organization is a broad mission. And we have a, a marimba quartet that tours, professional marimba quartet. We also have a professional group called the Heartland Marimba Ensemble, which is young artists and uh, rotating personnel that picks up projects throughout the season when, when things come out or uh, come our way. Uh, we publish music and we host usually in a year, a season we're hosting a festival of some kind online. Now we have some online formats for festivals as well. And the silver lining of our COVID pandemic, I guess (laughs) one of them. Um, and we are also, you know, working on new initiatives with educational projects and commissioning music um, and and different kinds of concert production. So that's Heartland Marimba. And then I I have some other side gigs with orchestras. I'm an orchestra manager for a symphony orchestra out here, and I play percussion with them and play timpani in another group. So during the season, I can stay really, really busy. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a freelance life where there is kind of ebb and flow throughout the year. But that's my main my main gigs right now. Is there a reason that you're located in Iowa? Yes. <laughs> so I got out here in 09 to take a position at Iowa State University and uh, in, Ames. in Ames, Iowa and, and that fall and so it was a percussion job. And I was just finishing my coursework as a doctoral student and uh, got the gig. And so moved out here to uh, middle America and in the very center of Iowa. And uh, then after that year, I met my partner and uh, he teaches at the University of Northern Iowa. So we and were doing kind of where a is that? That's, so that's in Cedar Falls, Cedar Iowa, Falls. Okay. 90 yeah. 90 miles uh, between the two cities, Ames and Cedar Falls. And so we were doing kind of a long distance thing for five years as I was still working at at uh, Iowa State University. And then when I left that job uh, in 2015, I we kind of consolidated things and moved to Waterloo, which is nearby Cedar Falls. And so we're based here and it allows, you know, allows me to get out and travel easily sort of where we're located. Um, Definitely by car. There's never any traffic here. There's always places to park. You know, that kind of stuff is sort of not a concern like I had when I lived in Chicago. Um, And we have a house here now and this, and and my studio is basically it's a converted garage near the house. So um, that's really great. And, you know, it's set up for chamber music here in the studio. So the quartet Heartland Marimba quartet can work here. So long story short, uh, yeah, that's why I'm in Iowa and 
Yeah, it's nice. It grows on me more and more every year. <laughs> so tell me about the beginnings of Heartland and why you felt like this was a thing that either you needed to do or a thing that you felt really well equipped to do or you didn't and you decided you were going to grow into the position. So the the main thing was I've always been drawn to uh, the this kind of startup and um, DIY in, in a sense, just like like part of that 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 movement of like all these these new um, chamber groups that came about. Like so so this goes back um, kind of in a roundabout way. I'm trying to tell you this goes back to Chicago when I was between my master's and and my doctorate. And I was freelancing there and I was doing tons of different kinds of projects. I was working with dance companies, chamber groups. I was playing in orchestras and doing kind of the traditional stuff as well, teaching drumline. But um, I was always really drawn to that scene of the kind of grassroots startup, like new, new music, new dance companies. And there was a lot happening. I, I started a group back then in 2004 called Sonic Inertia. And it was a mixed media, uh, interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary group, dance, music, and, and electronic media. And, you know, we did a variety of projects. I've always been interested in that mission that kind of covers a, a broad um, basis where, uh, you know, we can pull in from a lot of different areas of the art form or the creative arts and create something big that will be lasting and, and, and appealing to as many people as we can. So, so that kind of went into Heartland Marimba as well, but, but yeah, initially it was that, that interest and excitement for that energy of, of building something from the ground up. And I got a lot of experience watching dancers and choreographers create their own companies, you know, teach, you know, teach at this studio, have rehearsal with their company at this studio, go teach at this studio later. I mean, these, these people were just like some of the busiest and hardest working people in the arts and it's modern dance. So they, they kind of have like, you know, they, they, they're kind of like the last performing art form that has sort of been brought up into, um, <clears throat> you know, this modern world uh, that, that we live in. And so they're, they're kind of working. It, it always seemed like they're just like having to work a little bit harder to like make things go for them, you know, modern and, uh, contemporary dance. It's like, I mean, they're operating at like the, there's no margin basically in terms of uh, profit. For that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And really inspiring to see. And, and I learned a lot too, because as you know, like music schools, are are still very traditional in the training aspect um and it's great in a lot of ways and we get we get tons of um value out of it uh but there but this focus is still like you're going to be a teacher or you're going to play in an orchestra and that's great and and um but but i feel like the the world has broadened quite a bit in the creative arts and we Hopefully we'll, and in some, some schools of music, we're seeing this where we see the broadening of a program into arts administration and uh, all these other kinds of aspects of like 
show production and raising, you know, grant writing and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's that's sort of infused in Heartland Marimba as well, in, in in essence, because the Marimba world, its niche little thing is is also kind of um, slow slow to the scene, I guess, or the last one to the scene, right? In classical music, um, so Heartland Marimba, is, you know, I was when I was sort of subconsciously not actively sitting down and, and brainstorming about like a company I wanted to start, but there were ideas forming over the years. Once I, um, you know, I went back to school for my doctorate and moved to Iowa to teach at a university. I just still had that drive. Like I want to start something up. I want to get something going. What is it that I want to do? And so I wanted to create a company that is forwarding the art form in the real world essentially. And so that's, I mean, that's the bottom line of, of what we do with Heartland Marimba is creating a market for Marimba performance, which benefits communities, artists, students, composers. And so we're always kind of focused on that broad, broad approach. Cause you have a, there's a quartet that's part of this. Mm-hmm. So how, how, who are those members and how, how have they been brought into the kind of the ethos of the organization? Yeah. I'm smiling because this is a great story how this works out. You know, it's an, it's, it's very non-traditional in terms of how a chamber music group formed, which typically, I mean, at least, at least in my experience, I've, the way things form are, are kind of in a grad school incubation, right? Yep. It's like yep. this, these, this collection of people got together and it worked out and, and 10 years later, they're doing some awesome things. Um, so HMQ came along after Heartland Marimbo had started. I, I started the festival in 2014 and I did that at Iowa state. I was still teaching there. Um, and, and it was just a blast. Like we had a, we had a resident composer, we had students, we had a guest artist group. Um, I think I, um, well, I hired local that year I hired, local percussionists to be the guest artists and to make up the ensemble. The next year I brought in clocks in motion and, and, and broadened it even more in 2015 with the touring group. And so in 2016, I had left the university setting and I was, you know, a free agent <laughs> out there kind of, you know, beating the pavement again, like I had done in Chicago uh, but let me tell you, Northeast Iowa is very different than <laughs> free, freelancing in Northeast Iowa is very different than freelancing in Chicago. <laughs> I guess. <I>, um, <laughs> if you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so as I was thinking, like, you know, the one of the ultimate goals being that we have full time positions for Marimba players one day as an organization. You know, what do I need to do? Well, we need a we need a chamber group. We need a a set group that is sort of the figureheads of the organization and kind of the main visible audible part of the organization. Right. And so that was the thinking behind it is marimba quartet. There's so much great repertoire. There's, there's that also a little bit of that, like classical music mystique behind the, the setting of a quartet, like string quartet, percussion quartet. Like it's, it's, it's a very um, 
kind of codified, strong chamber music presentation. And so, uh, so that's kind of how. So, hold on, I, I do. Yeah. I want to quibble with one point, which is I think you said there's a lot of great marimba quartet rep. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Really? Like yeah, I mean, okay. maybe now. <laughs> right. Let, let me let me let me uh, back that statement up. I mean, so compared to yes, so so that was my thinking back then. Um, more than people think, there were there you know out of all the percussion ensemble music we have, percussion quartet and percussion or marimba quartet were kind of the main right the main selections of what composers write for in a way and and percussion quartet is much had much more rep than marimba quartet obviously but but there were you know in my head there were like a good 20 pieces that i was like i really wanted to do you know so i was like there's lots of music out there (laughs) compared to string quartet of course not i mean we're at we're at like infancy level yeah but um yeah so you know we've done a lot of work as much as we can over the last five years to, to get more pieces out there. Um, and we're, you know, we've got like projects constantly going to, to generate more uh, marimba quartet rep, but yeah, so that was the thinking 2016. So I, um, the founding members, I want to give credit to them to HMQ were myself, Joe Malay, Andrew Veit and Michael Jones. And, um, that, that crew was active until 2019. And then we've had some membership changeover. Now, Joe Malay is still with us and myself, Hannah Weaver, who teaches at the university of Nebraska, Omaha and Ujjal Bhattacharya. And so Ujjal is a former student of mine when I was at Iowa state in high school, he was at, at the end of his high school he studied with me and then he went off to Carnegie Mellon and then studied with Gordon Stout. And he's done some amazing things like great uh, uh, prize winner and competitions in Europe and stuff like that. And, um, and Hannah, I met Hannah through a masterclass I did at Eastman once and we've been in touch and I always knew her as like this, like real energetic, enthusiastic chamber musician. Um, so, uh, yeah, so she's great. She's just joined us in like January. It's, it's sort of been a little ambiguous with the, the pandemic, but yeah, so she started with us in January and Joe was a founding member and he, he actually auditioned for us when we put a call out there in 2016. At what point was the publishing arm a, a, a piece of this? So that came around 2016 as well. I think I was like doing my own, uh, dabbling in my own sort of publishing business. I've, I think I actually called it like Sonic Inertia Publications after my group back in Chicago to, to uh, tribute the name. And then I just one day was sort of like you wake up at three in the morning and you're like, oh, what am I, I mean, why am I doing this separately? Just put them together. It's like, it's, you know, it's going to make things stronger. And so we have Heartland Marimba publications and we have about 70 titles right now available. And that, that's been probably one of the trickier parts, arms of the organization, just because it's, it is kind of very different from like running a performing arts group. Right. And then you have this arm of it. That's like more, 
in the industry part of it, you know, and, and, um, but I still am very proud of that aspect of what we do because it, it brings in, um, it broadens our, our community because we have, we have an artist roster of performers and composers, you know? And so we, it's, I think it's very cool how we've, we've set up, and and this is kind of a new thing over the pandemic, set up a, a roster sort of like you think of like Marimba one has an artist roster. Um, Harlan Marimba does too. And there's ways to like work up the ladder and it's like, it's a pathway to like real, real live marimba work, <laughs> paid marimba work, if you can imagine. <laughs> Does everything fall under one kind of company or is like, is everything its own little organization in terms yeah, of it, like, I think of like business and filing and, and right. kind of starting all that stuff. It is. It's all under, um, at the moment, it's under Heartland Marimba Festival, which is a nonprofit organization. And that's incorporated with the state of Iowa and the federal government. And, you know, we have a, a board of directors and all that stuff that goes with nonprofit business. At the moment, that's how it works that way. Um, there's for kind of the arts admin component of this episode, there's an allowance for nonprofit businesses to sell um, goods to a certain extent, as long as it doesn't exceed the the revenue they're making from the mission, you know, the the nonprofit mission of it. And so at the point at this point we're okay because all of our revenue from touring and stuff is much bigger than the the publications. If it ever goes the other way, we'd have we'd have to separate, you know, the publications into a um, LLC kind of business, for profit kind of business. But as long as we're, you know, staying in good stature with the rules of nonprofits, nonprofitdom, <laughs> uh, we're, we're good, you know, just um, using all the money to benefit the mission at the end of the fiscal year, then that's, we're kind of working as one big umbrella organization right now. Explain that a little bit because mm-hmm. in financially for nonprofits, is it, is it that like a certain, like you can pay out of like whatever the organization brings in, but then like a certain amount has to go back into the company. Like what, what's tell me a little bit more about the, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Just as like a side note, I love uh, like talking about this kind of stuff because I think, you know, we were talking a little earlier, like about uh, s- schools of music and how I feel like they need to kind of broaden into this arts administration for people um, and so that's like one of, I wanted to mention earlier, that's like one of the things that I try to do as much as I can is like present this information for people. So, um, for your listeners, feel free to like reach out to me with any questions, you know, young artists that are wanting to start groups and things like that kind of been around the block a few times with, with this kind of thing. And I could, I'd like to help. So yeah, to answer your question though, um, the yeah in nonprofit uh, business, the organization. So when I say our money has to go back to the mission, um, it's just a, a way of saying at the end of the year, at the end of our fiscal year, whichever you can like kind of choose that fiscal year. I think ours ends in August thirty first or something like that. Um, 
since we we rotate around the school year mostly and the concert season year. So um, at the end of that period, we have to show that all the money we've earned in the year has been paid out to or used in support of the mission. So that includes paying artists, paying, you know, composers that we commission, paying administration, um, you know, any of the expenses that go along with touring, of course, like travel and, and whatnot, um, or any goods that we buy, like if we invest in instruments, all of that is good, you know, for use of the revenue. What we can't show is that we're paying our board members to be on the board or some, some one person is benefiting, you know, substantially more than the rest of the people. So like I could pay myself an executive director salary, which is acceptable. Um, and I could pay myself as an artist, but I couldn't just like, you know, keep 75% of the profits and, <laughs> and then just dole out pennies because yeah, we are in the marimba arts <laughs> so right. around, you know, to the rest of the people. So it has to be like a reasonable division and, and you have to be able to show proof of that, that it's, um, going, you know, to support the, the function and the charitable function of the organization. Regarding the publishing part, one thing I, I was I was thinking about is that I, I and I haven't looked. It's been a while since I've looked at your kind of the pieces that you have, but you have there are there are arrangements there too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's been the has there been have there been challenges getting the rights to those things? Uh, not. I mean, we've only released public domain things okay. at the moment. Yeah, and um, you know we've had several not several we've had a few conversations with different composers about certain arrangements. Like, um, see, there was a, a Billy Joel thing that we wanted. We were, we were sort of, uh, toying with the idea of releasing it. And at the moment for the company, we just decided to kind of keep it to public domain. Um, but yeah, down the road, I think it's important to offer high quality arrangements in the percussion world. Um, and what we like to do with our our uh, publishing company is try to offer multiple versions. So there'll be a quartet and an octet version, for example. Um, and so at least it kind of broadens the appeal there a little bit for a teacher who could buy the piece and have an option of, of using four or five or six players or something like that. Um, so... You know, but but it, these things are are slowly building, and 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 that you know, with the broadness of what we do, it t- it takes maybe a little more time to kind of build it up there. But yeah, one day we'll offer a wider range of arrangements. I, I have curiosity. What what's the Billy Joel song? Oh, it was the root beer rag. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It's great for marimbas, right? I mean, we've we've performed it. And the Cortez performed it. And yeah, it was a great arrangement. It was a lot of fun to play, but we just, you know, there's, there's a certain fee you have to play, you have to pay to do these. And, and then you have to like kind of weigh that against, are, are we going to make that back in the reasonable amount of time? <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so fun side note, um, my undergrad degree, which is in piano, I, I, as an, that was an encore I did. Oh, nice. Root beer rag. Yeah. I played Billy Joel like music my whole life. So it was, yeah. uh, that's a good one. Yep. We <laughs> use it as an encore sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's awesome. I, obviously pandemic mm-hmm. affects things in very, very interesting, you know, odd ways. I want you to, th- can you think about this in terms of like obvious things that were, that had to be different and then maybe less obvious things that, that ended up being a challenge or, or even a blessing in some ways from what's happened. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, there, there, that's a interesting way to categorize what we, what I experienced, but um, yeah. So the obvious things, I mean, I, I can, tell you and and it's it's really not to be like boastful in any way i just remember it vividly i was actually on tour with clocks in motion the day march 14th 2020 and so we all remember sort of that day or one of those days around that 13 14 15 as like oh crap (laughs) this is serious um and we were driving, we were finishing a tour. We, we actually did a gig, a masterclass gig in Colorado, I think on the 14th and, or maybe the 13th. And, and we were already like shoulder elbow bumping with the students. And this is like Grand Junction, Colorado. So this was over the mountains past Denver. We're driving back and I'm just thinking like, oh man, this is gonna, this is gonna mess me up for like three years like just kind of seeing it play out, like even in that very first day, you know, um, cause they were talking about how the next month we're shutting down things. And so, so that for me, that was sort of the obvious. And that was only just me kind of drawing on, you know, like just kind of the experience I've had in, in, um, the the nonprofit world, so to speak, just kind of building stuff from the ground up, knowing like what kind of foundation and the the pieces that you have to put in place. And then as soon as things start to go, you're like, Oh, there's a lot more that's going to happen here. It's going to take us three years to rebuild. And so I still feel like that it'll be about two or three before it feels like really back um, for, especially for Heartland Marimba. Um, you mean from now or from when it started from now? Okay. Yeah. Maybe more like two from now because things are starting to turn around and snap, snap back, so to speak. And, but then there's also kind of a, for all these organizations out there, there's sort of a caution and a trepidation about how to move forward budget wise, but also, you know, with responsible, protocol for virus protection, things like that. So it's still very tricky. And then, and then we're sort of the next tier of organizations that's trying to get them to hire us, right. (laughs) To bring us in. Um, So we're sort of waiting around for what they're wanting to do. And when they say they have money and then we can kind of move forward with our plans. And so, so there, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a, many stages of getting things ready, um, you know, with planning like seasons, as I'm sure, you know, uh, but yeah, so, so those were kind of the obvious thing. And then 
I mean, I don't want it to sound all, I don't want to like <laughs> bring up all the bad points here, but, but, you know, just for a freelancer kind of looking ahead at that, it's, it's very tricky to, to see like, Oh, how am I going to get out of this sort of thing? You know, cause, cause usually when uh, the summer rolls around, there's less work for a freelancer typically. Um, but, but you're coming off of like a super busy part of the season in the spring. And then there was none of that. And then it was the summer and it was just like, Oh man. So this is, this is going to be really tricky for like six months. But I was one, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, you know, we were, we were fine here. There were a lot of people that had it much harder financially and stuff, but, but yeah. And then the, the not so obvious things that sort of snuck up, we, you know, we had, especially with Heartland Marimba, it was just um, surprisingly challenging for me to navigate because the company had, has come, you know, the company has been around for about six, six or seven years in the quartet four to five years. So we're, we're at a little like pretty, uh, pretty cool precipice. Like, like actually 2020 was supposed to be like a huge year for us. And then it changed dramatically. But so that was one thing, you know, financially we were kind of like stuck because we had invested in some marimbas and things like that. And, and all of our revenue kind of went away. But, but internally, um, I, what I learned was I needed to take myself back to school, so to speak, because I had spent the last 25 years in a practice room, <laughs> whereas people who run nonprofit companies go to school for nonprofit management, right? And they learn crisis management and they take classes in, you know, business structuring and all this stuff. And like, that's not what I've done. I've just been sort of doing it um, as a, you know, learning on the job kind of thing, which is a lot of fun and, um, and challenging and interesting too. But, but yeah, but then when you have this huge crisis hit, you're just like, Oh, I'm not sure I know how to handle all this, you know, with, with a, a group of people. So, so I did, I actually did a lot of work on my own um, where I'd get up, you know, my morning reading was always like, nonprofit reading time. And then my evening reading was leisure reading time. So I did a lot of that, like study, you know, studying nonprofit business and trying to help myself kind of uh, navigate the unexpected challenges that we, that hit us. I'm glad you said that. It's, it's interesting about, you know, there's like the difference between doing something and learning through doing but then there's also the opportunity to kind of develop your technique yeah. on that, like, you know, like the arts management technique, you know, and like developing your toolkit. Um, I was just at a, at a bandmaster conference this past week and I, and there were one of the clinics was a conducting clinic and I, I don't do that much conducting, but I was like, there were just things in there that I was like, Oh yeah, I can actually get better at, you know, conducting pep band by by like learning how to do cut like getting better cutoffs and just it's yeah. just like a technique thing it's like i just yeah. hadn't focused very spent a lot of time at it and so that this is kind of like you you build your own toolkit or sharpen it mm -hmm. with your you know with your reading yeah exactly and no that's a really great way to put it because um 
you know, there were things that I knew, like, uh, I had intuition about navigating, um, some of the challenges we had, but I didn't know how to, to approach it in terms of a group, group format and communication. Um, and also how to like draw on the whole organization, you know, the board and all the artists and everything, you know, we had, we have such a, like a, a really beautiful setup and collection of people. Like one thing that we needed was to bring everyone together stronger and like draw from all of those artists. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot about like what you're saying, sharpening, that tool, those tools by like just listening to podcasts and, and going to webinars and reading a little bit online. And you're like, Oh yeah, I'll try it that way. And then it works. And that's brilliant. You know, it's <laughs> such a, such a simple suggestion. I should say it this way instead of maybe saying it this way. And you get such a better reaction from your group, you know, and Oh yeah. Well, I've been practicing paradiddles for 20 years, so right. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really been practicing the art of communication in business. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but do those arch management people, how fast are their paradiddles? Probably well, not that I fast. Know. Like we should put that to them. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Matthew, let's back up. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southwest Virginia okay. in uh, a very rural area. Yeah. Um, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. My parents are from there. And, and then we, when I was five, we moved to Southwest Virginia. And Where? Because I know that area. Oh, uh, south of Roanoke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like in, uh, Christiansburg, Blacksburg. So that's, that's a little northwest of Roanoke. So we go the other way. It's like Franklin County. Like Grundy? Uh, yes. Near, nearby. Yeah. It's all, it's all kind of in the same Okay. Mountain Valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Franklin County is where my parents live now. And it's uh, for one, t- at one time, it was known as the moonshine capital. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course it was. Like the illegal moonshine business, right? <laughs> um, so I will not deny or confirm that I have tried some moonshine from <laughs> Franklin County, Virginia. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they have a beautiful pl- place out there, like a, a small farm, and um, they built. We built a house when I was a senior in high school there, and so it's very idyllic if you can imagine, like the Blue Ridge Mountains, mm-hmm. and just we're just like in the midst of all the mountains and down a gravel road. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I we uh, I taught for three years at um, Concord University. Ah, and up in West Virginia? Yeah, in uh, in uh, Athens, West Virginia, like mm-hmm. 10 miles from – it was one of those – it was a weird it's, – it's like one probably one of the strangest locations because it's – because Virginia is both like 10 miles to the east and 10 miles to the west. <laughs> oh, okay. You're like on a little um, – Like uh, it kind of wraps around at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. It's really yeah. weird. So, yeah, oh, that, 460 okay. – four, 460 – East and four six so four sixty west goes to Grundy and four sixty east goes to Blacksburg and and oh uh, yeah yeah okay I can picture where you are yeah four sixty yeah. travels like cro- right uh, north and across of all that area yeah that I grew up in yeah yeah 
Gotcha. So what, um, what uh, did you have any family members in the arts? Uh, no, <laughs> um, not, nope, not professionally. Um, you know, grandparents who played instruments and I have their instruments now in our house. And, um, but yeah, that was it. Um, it was, yeah, you, you know, I have my father's an engineer. They sometimes say that like children of engineers end up in the arts, I think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you, you know, I, I, uh, actually enjoy talking to students in small towns about this because, you know, where I grew up there, it was not certainly a, an art arts cultivating area. Right. It's <laughs> um, no Cedar Falls, Iowa is what you're saying. No, no, actually, no. Like that, that's sort of a big city ass, uh, a big city kind of, um, situation compared to where I grew up. But, um, you know, I would have to drive an hour, an hour and 20 minutes to go take private lessons. You know, I studied with John Floyd at Virginia Tech and he, that was an hour and 20 minutes away. It made, this is like another part of that, like building from the ground up thing that I have, you know, it really made me kind of go for it. I got the bug when I was a freshman in high school, I caught the, the classical music virus, I guess. (laughs) And I just was like eager to seek out whatever opportunities. So I did like an indoor drum line that was an independent organization. So, you know, I drive to to a town an hour away and stay for the weekend on the gym floor to do this like WGI thing and um, played in community orchestras in another town really far away, things like that, you know, but it worked out. It sounds like, though, that your like your folks were very were supportive. I mean, obviously, if, if you're going to whether that's because you were motivated to 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 make these long drives to, to get better or they saw that it was important that you had access to to whatever it took to get to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. They they were supportive. Um, just, you know, as like strong parents are and. Um, I don't know that they always understood like the artistic pursuit, right? Um, and that kind of innate like hunger that you just can't explain sometimes. Um, but yeah, so they 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 just kind of let let it be and trusted that like I was, you know, doing good things <laughs> and not not going out there and like you know messing around or messing up. Right. So, yeah. With the fact that you are having to do all this traveling, uh, what, what, what locally, uh, what was the kind of art situation like or the band situation like, whatever you were doing, you know, within in, in high, high school? school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In high school. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I should make sure I um, send appreciation towards my high school band director where the program was super small. He, um, he was a great trumpet player and like mostly was a gigger and like did a lot of music theater and things like that. And then kind of came into teaching high school for like, I think literally like the six years I was there, like he was, or maybe it was six years. He started when I was in seventh grade. So I'd already started in sixth grade. And he came in seventh grade and then he retired or he left like the year after I graduated. So 
so that, you know, it was just really appreciative to get him as kind of a mentor in that way. And we worked out some, um, kind of, uh, works st- or independent study situations in high, like my senior year of high school, I had some flexibility with my, my scheduling. So I was able to kind of work with him for half the school day for the whole year, um, which was just really cool. I could either practice or work, work closely with him and then also do the band class. But yeah, the school only had a band. We didn't have a jazz band. We didn't have an orchestra at that time. It was a small 1A school and, um, you know, there was a theater department and I don't even think they had a choir, honestly. Um, So, you know, it was a country school. But the good thing about that is like there was no uh, competition for the music spaces. (laughs) Like I just had free reign of the music spaces when there were no rehearsals happening. So I could be in there and practice all the time and never, never have an issue. But yeah. um, So that's why I kind of had to like seek out things in other, other towns, other counties um, for experience. But, but I got, I got really good uh, skills and sort of learned just by watching like him as a band director and, and, uh, you know, a broad sense of like, what being a, a good musician means. Yeah. I think was helpful just to have that to like sort of learn on my own. Right. I mean, you can do a lot of learning to play an instrument on your own. Uh, you know, if you're coming from a, an understanding of like what it takes. This is almost like an early indication of like freelancing and yeah. uh, self-motivation like you literally are it. Like you're the reason that you're in there. You you there's like not competition. It sounds like yeah. it's like you just have the space. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I hadn't thought about it that way because uh, you know it, it it instilled in me like a uh, you know you know I, an independence. Right, I had to like kind of make it happen because I wanted it. I there was something that was like drawing me to it. You know, maybe, whether it was that like fourth Sousa March we had just played or, or whatever. It's like, I got to do this again, you know? And so, um, and then that, that I, I took that through, of course, like I had a freelance career in Chicago for a short time. And then again, when I left Iowa state, I had to sort of draw on that, um, you know, that kind of drive to, to build a, a, another freelance career. Now, while you're there, while you're in high school, are you doing anything else? Are you involved in anything that's either sports, student government, or, or anything that's kind of filling out your time aside from you being in the in the music building 35 hours a day? Yeah, <laughs> I tried. Yeah, I tried tennis for mm-hmm. a little while, um, two years, and I was okay at it. <laughs> was a really like sporty kind of guy, um, you know, and I did some uh, uh, club stuff, you know, stuff with clubs, like environmental clubs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, it, it, it sort of morphed into this like obsession for me, music. Um, and I also, you know, I think another thing is suddenly I was like, Oh, this is, this is really great. I want to do this for my life. Wow. I feel like I'm way behind. Cause then, uh, you know, you look in like, I, you know, at that point, I'm a sophomore in high school 
And I think, you know, if you think about classical musicians, like pianists and stuff, who start when they're four years old, it's like, Oh no, <laughs> I've got a lot of catching up to do. So that, that kind of hit me at some point in high school. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so I was just kind of like really hungry for it. So where do you end up doing undergrad? I went to East Carolina university, um, first to study with Mark Ford who was, who was there, um, another two years. And, uh, yeah, I auditioned around. I kind of did like the, Oh, I'll, I'll audition at these three schools to appease my parents. Cause they're close by. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I want to audition at this school, which is like five hours away. And then this one, which is even further. Um, and so I ended up getting some scholarship money and going to, to study with Mark cause he was kind of the marimba guy in the region. And, um, and then I transferred with him in 1999, dating myself here, uh, for my junior year to, to North Texas and finished there. It's been a while. It's actually now that I think about it. It's been a while since I've I've talked to someone who actually went to East East Carolina. Um, oh yeah, because and but he went to East Carolina under I think Harold Lloyd. Is that the oh Harold Jones? Harold Jones. I'm sorry, yeah, Harold Lloyd's yeah. the uh, silent film star. Um, <laughs> Harold Jones. Yeah. So they they went during that period before uh, Mark got there. Huh. Um, so talk a little bit about the, just the, if, how much, what you know about kind of the East Carolina program. That was amazing. Like getting there into this music school situation with Mark. And then the second year, Christopher Dean was hired. And so, you know, it was just awesome to work with both of them in that, especially in that second year. Um, but yeah, Harold Jones was, um, he was still around in Greenville and he would visit and I, you know, met him on several, several occasions. And then when we, we all moved to Texas, we would still see him at PASIC. I mean, he would still go to PASIC and for the longest time. I mean, uh, I, I have lost touch with like how he is and things, but, um, but yeah, he, he was, he was definitely a figure in that area, you know, just kind of, being one of those early figures along with John Beck and, and that, that crew to, to really uh, hone in on percussion pedagogy and percussion education, right. Um, In, in the university level and East Carolina is a, a big music education school. Most of their graduates are music education graduates and, um, you know, he, he was like, I'm sure very much a part of building that is certainly in the percussion area, but I think for that whole school building that reputation, um, and, you know, Mark studied there and got a great, great education. He, Mark Ford did his undergrad there. It's just cool to kind of be around that kind of, uh, legacy and lineage, you know, where you have your teacher's teacher right ne- nearby hanging out. Um, and John Floyd was part of that too. He's, he was at Virginia tech before Annie Stevens took over. Um, and there may have been someone else in there, but, but John was part of that group of, of gentlemen who just, 
you know, really kind of honed in on percussion pedagogy. And I think John was the first uh, doctoral percussion student at Eastman, the first one to graduate with a doctorate in percussion. When you start working with Mark Ford, what kinds of things do you do you know that you you find out quickly that's like, oh, I need to catch way up? I, I don't remember the specifics. Um like in terms of there was, you know, there was always technical things that I was, you know, wanting to do and he, you know, he was helping me with getting better at. Um, but I think you know, I always noticed that I was, I was always, um, inspired and, and just amazed at like, you know, those, those teachers that you have who just seem like they just know everything, you know, or they have, they just have an understanding of like so many things. And you're, you're like, how is, when you're 18, you're like, how, how are they doing this? You know? And Mark, you know, he's a great composer, performer. He's a great businessman, um, which is something I came to kind of really appreciate later, of course, after after leaving undergrad and going off and studying with other people. Um, he's a great, uh, you know, he was, he was a good steel drum player. He doesn't do that as much. I mean, I think he still plays at, in with the North Texas groups. Um you know, he had albums of himself singing and playing steel drums. And I was just like so amazed at, at this uh, ability to kind of do all these things. And Christopher Dean, no exception, right? I mean, he's has his own kind of plethora of, of amazing aspects. And um, so, so that was the thing. It's like I always just like was eager to kind of one day hold that – station in life like to have to have uh just and of course when you get there you always are still learning that's the other secret right when you (laughs) when you when you get to that point wherever your teachers were at that moment when you think wow how are they this amazing when you get there you're you're thinking oh i still have so much to learn right (laughs) like uh so that's probably what they were thinking at that time too and um but yeah, that, that was kind of, for me, as a young percussionist, an under, undergrad, that was what was most inspiring and, and kind of made me like really, really go for it every, or just like get up and, and just be excited to like get back and working on it again. Yeah. Now, because you mentioned it, what, what was the specific business mind that you saw with Mark? Certainly the networking part, like just his connections, you know, he, he started innovative percussion with Eric Johnson, Johnson. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Eric Johnson, uh, back, you know, that first mallet that they wrapped together, right? Like they were wrapping mallets in their apartment or something, I think in North Texas, um, in Denton, Texas. You know, that's one part of it is just just being industrious, right? And, and like saying see, or seeing the possibilities ahead. That was, another part of it is like he, I feel like he could see, if, uh, he's definitely a visionary in that way. Um, 
And so starting Innovative and then starting the publishing part of Innovative. Um, and then he was president of PAS for a while, I think, right after yeah. I was at North Texas. I, I forget the years. But, um, you know, so those things, it was just always something that I noticed uh, was important about being in the business, right? You, you need to, you need to obtain some of these other skills. Certainly your craft needs to be in line and you got to have all the fundamentals in place as a musician and all that. And, and then you need to get experience, but then there's kind of some business acumen that, that can be beneficial. You know, you don't have to use it. You don't have to like, cultivate that but um so so i guess i just recognize that in him and and that kind of startup mentality too like with the starting innovative and things did you like greenville yeah i guess it was okay you know it was <laughs> freshman and so, uh, sophomore year of college yeah. mostly i was living on campus and so it was you know state school college experience right uh, and so that was great. The, you, you know, it was also great because we weren't far from the Atlantic ocean. Right. So we went there a lot. That yeah. was great. Yeah. Um, but you then, weren't like, but you're not like close. I mean, you're just not far no, from it. It was like an hour and, or a little yeah. more, a little less depending yeah. on where you went, but yeah. And it was five, it was like far enough from my family that it felt like, I was going to school a long way off, but I was close enough. I could get back fairly easily. Yeah. So that was, that was nice. Five hours this, uh, distance is I yeah. think a good one to, to go with for students. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the, I, I think of it as the, what's the distance where they have to tell me they're coming. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to, if you just show up, we've got bigger problems than. <laughs> right. 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 Cause that take, yeah, you go, it takes some effort to like, you're skipping school or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So have you, have you been to Greenville? Uh, two or three times. So I did my, my, um, my grad school is UNCG. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. And at the same, and so, um, I was in grad school when you were in, when you did your start of your undergrad. So it's possible we actually saw it. Well, yeah. Cause like if you all came to like days of percussion, yeah, which I sure you did. And I don't yeah. remember where they were my first couple years of grad school. Then, then I probably saw you play and you probably saw me play in like ensemble settings and we didn't, we didn't know. Oh yeah. So what year was, what years was that? Uh, I was did my my grad school there because I did doc masters and doctorate there it was ninety seven to two thousand three. Oh yeah, I we would have seen, we would have seen each other or met because I had some I had an oboe friend Julie Snyder. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, Julie yeah. Snyder. Yep. Yeah. So we she and I were actually so that that indoor drum line that I was telling you about in yeah. high school that independent group. She and I played one year that. She was the top base, and I was the second base in that indoor line. Okay. So, um, so we we were really good friends, and she was uh, older than me, so she was at UNCG while I was still in high school. So I was like visiting her my senior year in high school, but then also in college, like we were still hanging out. And um, uh, gosh, what was her percussion 
friend or boyfriend. Um, oh, Jason. What's his last name? Jordan. Yeah. I mean, they've they, been married for a they're long married. time. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I'm, I remember him and, and yeah. meeting, meeting some of the other UNCG folks. Um, and I, I think I'm pretty sure I auditioned at UNCG for my undergrad too, for okay. court. Yep. Yeah. So that, that, uh, Greensboro is like an hour and 10 minutes from my family's house, like okay. straight South. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, okay. So like, um, what is the town now? Um, if you go Rocky, like Rocky, no, no, what's the, so what's the one that's, that's like just inside of Virginia, but it's like two twenty. Danville. Danville. Yeah. So you go through there, Martinsville, Danville. Yes. Keep keep going. I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and then it's like another 45 to an hour North of there. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Now I, now I have a better idea of where. Sometimes I fly into Greensboro airport. Oh, sure. You know, kind of choose between Greensboro and Roanoke. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now that's, that, that's much clearer. Um, cause I had a good friend of mine from grad school, uh, who was a, she was a doctoral student when I was a, I think a master student, but she was, uh, her family is from Martinsville. Okay. So I actually went up and saw her band play, which was like a seventies cover band. It was awesome. And then I was like <laughs> Martinsville. And then I passed by the racetrack. That was the only reason uh, that I knew I had yeah. heard of Martinsville. <laughs> yeah. The racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that's great. I, I didn't realize you went to UNCG. They, that's a, it was a good program and it still is and yeah. really strong. Um, like, you know, full program, uh, undergrad master's doctorate. So yeah. That's cool. Yeah, there was a little. I mean, that I, I was because there was a little bit of a uh, of creative tension, we'll say, because between those two schools, because they were they were kind of offering a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I remember there was a day of percussion at Chapel Hill, UNC yep. Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. I was there. Maybe. Yeah, we were all there together. Yeah. Um, that's the main one that I remember. Okay. And maybe there was one in. Did we go all the way? I don't know if we went all the way to, um, where did Frank Falvo, not Frank Falvo. That's not. Oh, um, App State. Yeah. App State. Mm-hmm. Rob Falvo. Is that his Rob name? Falvo. Yeah. Okay. I don't, maybe we went there once too. Well, yeah. I mean, it was always weird because you would have like, we like, we really scared. Cause there were a couple of times it was, it was in Cullowee. In Western, which is way west. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, we didn't, I don't remember going to that one. <laughs> I don't think you did because that—that's yeah. like, I mean, for you all, that's probably like a seven or eight hour drive from from uh, ECU. Um, because it was like five from us in Greensboro. Like, yeah. I mean, it was so it's so far west. Um, yeah. So sometimes it was in some kind of wacky locations for like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to know more about the decision to, to, to follow Mark because it makes sense in a educational setting, but you're going to a completely different part of the country. Yeah. <laughs> and a completely different size of program too. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So tell, tell me a little, I want to hear um, more about that. So I started my undergrad as a, a music ed major. And, um, 
you know, I, I got so, someone along the way was like, oh, you should probably do music ed. It's more, um, it's more reliable or whatever the term was. And there was a certain point that I thought, like, like this isn't exactly what I want to do. And I, I felt like I shouldn't, I shouldn't just like go get a music ed degree in case I have to use that as a backup plan. Cause I, I don't, I didn't think that that was like a fair way to approach music ed. Like there are people who like really want to do that and they are, you know, they are built for that. And, and, and I respect them immensely. Like people, you know, music educators in elementary through high school. Yep. Um, and so I switched to performance and, you know, and, and so that was sort of a point where I was like, okay, performance, this is it. I'm, I'm going for it. Full, full tilt, dump it, jumping in the deep end here. <laughs> and so when Mark uh, announced that he was going to North Texas, for me, it was this point of like, I had to make this decision you know, okay, so I, I, I think I should, I think I should go with him because, you know, this importance and performance has sort of like, uh, blossom bloomed in me or something, you know? And so that was kind of where, where I was coming from. Um, and you know, North Texas has a reputation for a great reputation for a lot of things, uh, music ed being one of them. Um, and of course jazz, but but also it's just a huge program. It's a, it's a big, big ass program. Right. So, so, you know, I, I went from a studio of like 20 percussionists and ECU was a really strong, um, you know, he had really built it to be a strong studio, 20 plus students and grad students included. And then I went to North Texas and it was like 130 percussionists and it's just like mind blowing and mind boggling. Um, but I'm glad I did it. You know, it was just really interesting to see kind of these two wildly different programs. I think it helped me, you know, when I taught at Iowa state, it helped me sort of have a, a an appreciation being, you know, a student at East Carolina university, North Texas and Northwestern, all very different types of schools and programs. Um, so going into Iowa state, I could at least like approach it in a felt like a broad way, you know, and, and not just be like locked in, like, this is how I did it. Or this is how such and such did it at this school, you know? So when I got to North Texas, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Cause they have a barrier system with percussion lessons. So I had to like quickly pass out all of these things that I should have passed out of in freshman, sophomore year. Um, and then, and then jump in as where I, you know, as best I could picking it up as a junior. Um, and then, you know, they had like three bands and three orchestras and three steel drum bands and three percussion ensembles. And it was just, it was just that kind of like, whoa, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, kind of percussion heaven, but also overwhelming at the same time, you know, when you have a five hour percussion studio class, like right before juries, because everyone has to play one time. <laughs> wow. 
Like, is this really, does this really say one o'clock to five or to six o'clock on the schedule? <laughs> yeah. Have I seen this right? Right. right. And then it's like five, probably it's like five 30 and you're like, God, there's like still 10 more people got to go or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we, we always joke about how we would, uh, at those studio seminars, um, you know, on the third Mexican dance performance, we would leave. We're like, okay, we're going to go get a snack and a pop somewhere. And we just like saunter off to a shop and come back. And it would be like Mexican dance again by a different player. <laughs> like, oh, it's the twilight zone, you know? <laughs> so, um, but, but that's like the kind of experience you would only have at a place like North Texas. Right. And, and on that studio class, I remember this quite vividly, the drum set players would just like, I was just like gobsmacked at like the ability of these guys to play those instruments so melodically and, and beautifully. Right. You know, and, and they, they were, um, crazy good serious drum set uh jazz majors who were playing in like the one o'clock to nine o'clock bands um and then they would play on the seminar studio um like seminar on fridays and you're just like in a, you know and it's like a small trio yeah and it was just a, it was amazing you know and so and then i got to study jazz vibraphone with ed smith mm-hmm. um so that it was just a really great experience. And honestly, when I left, I was only there two and a half years. I left and thought, man, I wish I had four or five years here, you know, but that was just kind of how it worked out. And, and I'm at least really thankful I got to do the two and a, the five semesters there. Because they have all the specialists. You, you, you just can't get to everybody. I no, mean, you're there the whole time. Right. That, and that was the thing is like, I, there's so much, that I wish I had experienced. Cause when I got there, I was still in this very traditional percussion major mindset. Like I must play in wind symphony and orchestra, right. you know, or, or one or the other and wind symphony, like at North Texas, if you do wind symphony, that's what you do. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's an everyday gig most of the afternoon um, or, or, four days a week or something. It was a lot. And then we were recording CDs every semester, things like that with the wind symphony. So, um, so then when I was graduating, I sort of turned around and like, Oh, you know, there was like the, uh, Afro Cuban ensemble here and the, the Indian ensemble with Sriji, uh, Pufalar Sriji and, and then the steel drum bands and like all these things that I couldn't do because the schedule that I had set up is like, percussion ensemble and wind symphony, which is great. Like <laughs> right. I mean, it's very traditional, you know, contemporary percussion training of uh, focus for me. At least I was kind of in the, in the building with all that going on. And I, I gleaned something from it. I just never really participated in those other ensembles. And I wish I had. While you were there, any other notable uh, percussion students while you were that were also students when you were there? Uh, yeah. So like Sandy, Sandy Rennick was a student. Um, S- Sandy Sherman at that time. Her, her handle on Instagram is baby vibes. 
No. Patricia and Islas. Oh yeah, okay. I know who yeah. she is because she did just did um she just did the girls march stuff. Ah, right. Yeah. So her I know her I see her handle uh a lot now, mostly when I think of her, her Instagram mm-hmm. handle. But yeah, Patricia Islas and uh Nick Worth. Mm-hmm. Probably seen him doing some things with his uh electronic um setup. And yeah, he was there. So Dave Hall came right after I left and we, you know, he teaches that in Nebraska. So many students um, that have gone on to do a lot of different and great things come out of there. Yeah. For our only curiosity's sake, would you remember what you played on your uh, recital or recitals there? My Like my senior yeah. recital? I think I played, I think I did Merlin mm-hmm. and um, I did a composition that I wrote which is published by um, Innovative Percussion called Concealed Chambers. I, so, I have that. I bought that piece a long time ago. I looked at it and I was that? like, this is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And then I, I haven't, sorry, I haven't looked at it. So. That's okay. Thank you for buying it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, it, it hasn't, I, I need to, I need to record it. Um, I never did release it, but yeah, I wrote that, uh, at the end of my time at North Texas and premiered it on my senior recital. And so, and then I did a piece by Sandstrom, um, a chamber piece called drums. Hmm. It has this like very peculiar timpani feature part. And then five other players that are doing all this like finger work on, uh, skins and, um, and I did a movement of the Bartok Sonata, mm-hmm. two pianos. Yeah, I think those were the, the biggies because the Merlin and or Concealed Chambers is like 12 minutes, five movements. Um, there were some smaller things I can't remember right now. But also that same, I, I think that recital was maybe a little shorter than normal because earlier that semester I did a a whole duo program with another percussionist because uh, we were kind of preparing, we were preparing for a competition that summer in Belgium. Gotcha. Well, what, what kind of stuff was on that one? Peter Klatzow's ambient resonances. Do you know that? Uh, I, from, I've heard little bits of it. I yeah. love that piece. It's like one, one of my favorite mallet duos. Um, we did some of the Rodrigo. There's um there's this like duo guitar. Uh, it's called like Madrigal Concierto de Madrigal or something. It's like 10 Madrigals for duo guitar and orchestra. And we did a version for two marimbas and piano of some of those movements. It's kind of fun to, yeah. to adapt. I mean, very, very, very much that kind of Spanish guitar style of playing. Or some of the a piece by Bob Becker with soprano and piano called crying time. That's also a, a favorite of mine, a lot of favorites on this. And then some of the, um, some of the rep for the competition, which was, I'm not, uh, Oh, Soham and Shakti. It was like a piece that was written for the competition. Actually kind of a cool marimba duo. I can't think of the composer right now, <laughs> but yeah. So, so it was a combination of some things that we wanted to, play that weren't for the competition and then some stuff uh, that we were getting ready 
for the competition. Maybe like Andrew Thomas's three transformations. Do you know that duo? No. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Definitely, um, it's different than Merlin, but it's tricky. <laughs> Yeah. It's tricky like Merlin. It, it still has a lot of notes like Merlin. and uh, Still a lot of notes. Yep. Two two players playing a lot of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you played just a, I, I always, whenever I think of the lot of notes, have you done um, and Legions Will Rise, Kevin Putz? Have you played that? No. You know that piece? I, I know of it. Yeah. Yeah. That, so I did that on a recital couple years ago and it's it was like the hardest it it was just that it was like 15 minutes of notes of of and it was and i said that like at the because i i I mean and and i was playing with you know these like all-star clarinetist all-star violinist and then me like barely hanging on and and there and i and i just kept saying to the to the audience like there's just a lot of notes in this like (laughs) and then and then people will come up after and be like there's a lot of notes in that. There's piece. a lot of notes. I know. <laughs> Times 15. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's a trio. It's, it's a trio. Per- it's okay. a great piece. Like I, I really like it, but man, it is very taxing. <laughs> Just yeah. <to> that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I like, I like Kevin's music. Um, mm-hmm. I have never played a lot of it, but I, you know, I've heard his concerto and things like that. Do you go right to Northwestern after? Yeah. So after North Texas, I stayed an extra semester (laughs) because I had to finish Texas government and Texas history. All right. (laughs) Which they didn't have in North Carolina, as you can imagine. Uh, Yes. Right. (laughs) So I was sort of like, what? (laughs) I got to, I have to add a semester on for this. Um, But, but it was good because I got to do, I got to kind of spread out some of the specialized lessons a little more while mm-hmm. I was there and studying with, you know, Ed Smith and the drum set teacher, um, Harold Bosarge that I was taking with him. So that, that, that was good. And, and so, yeah. And then I, I deferred a quarter at Northwestern. And so Michael Burrett was very, um, very generous in working with me and, and making sure I could defer and start in January in uh at northwestern so i moved up to chicago in early january and in the middle of the winter and got going in my masters yep now the ability deferred does that mean that you had a you had an assistantship you know he was kind of a master at that stuff he was able to finagle it and, and make it work for the assistantship and scholarships and stuff um and that year was a big year for the master's group. I think we had there, I think there were like two master's students already there and four coming in. Wow. So it was a big crew of master's people. And so some of these names you'll definitely know Peter Martin mm-hmm. um, and uh, he was at, Oh, oh, Clay Condon. He played in in um, Third Coast for a while. A- um, Anthony Calabrese. Mm-hmm. You know all these guys. It was just like really good players. Sort of a, a, the next level kind of thing. You know <laughs> when you get when you get there and you're sort of like, oh, I gotta work really hard. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you get there, what do you feel like is the are the things that are similar different? How do you, what's kind of different about, 
uh, studying with Burrett versus studying with Ford, like, you know, those kinds of aspects. And obviously, I mean, you're a grad student, so it's like there's like a different yeah. idea of, of being a student, I guess, at that point. too. Yeah, yeah. It's a different role that yeah. you're playing, a little bit more of a leadership role, but not quite as much as that um, doctoral level. But it was different, certainly. I mean, the studio was like 22 students. So back to that, that kind of um, dynamic, but different kinds of players, you know, um, Texas, Texas puts out like great players, but it's, it's certainly a different approach. Whereas you're up in Chicago and there's like a lot more focus on um, just a lot more obvious focus on orchestral playing like you can do that in Texas, but, but the, of course at North Texas, there's just so much to do that it never feels like you're focusing on just like one or two things. Um, and so for a short time, I was like, I'm going to be an orchestral music, uh, percussionist and, uh, and, and really kind of dove into that and studying with Jim Ross, who was a, who was a Chicago symphony member and Burrett, you know, Burrett's approach, um, to his studio is, you know, there's a lot of importance placed on percussion ensemble, which was awesome. Chamber music, um, was sort of a main component of what we were doing. And I, and I took that with me, you know, when I was teaching and still, still of course draw from that, but, uh, you know, some similarities, but, but a lot of differences in the energy from the teachers and the program and the other students. And, um, you know, and like I said, things just kind of like focused in a little more. And that's, that's part of being a grad student as well. But I think just going to that kind of a program where it's 120 students here and then, 20 students there. <laughs> that's just natural how that's going to feel like, Oh, okay. We've sort of tightened the, the, the microscope a little bit and, and zeroed in on some things here, but yeah, I loved it. And, and a big draw for me was actually the city, Chicago yep. and the urban area. Um, so I, I always like to tell this story is like when I was flying to my audition at Eastman, I had a connection in Chicago and I can't remember if I had already done my audition at Northwestern yet, or I was going to do that soon. But I remember thinking flying into Chicago and looking at the skyline and I was just like, Oh, I want to go to school here. <laughs> but then I was on my way to, to Rochester <laughs> to audition at Eastman after that. So, so it all worked out and I'm really happy that I ended up uh, at Northwestern. Well, and, and then Bert ended up going to Eastman. So there you go. Like, yeah, I almost, I almost transferred cause I was, um, I started my doctorate his last year at Northwestern mm. and I almost transferred to Eastman with him, but um, decided against it just, because, you know, at, at that age, I was just in a different place in life. It's like, I need to have work when I now and when I finish my coursework, I need to have like freelance work in place. And I knew if I had gone to Nor uh, Rochester, 
it would be a li- it would be a lot different in that way because there's you know it's it's just a different city it's smaller and um you know it would have been a, a bigger commitment financially so i decided to stay in chicago so that means that, that while you were in Northwestern, you were with Bert and then you were with Chi. Yeah, for my doctorate. So I finished my doctorate with uh, with Chi, um, and then my second year in my coursework, she was there, and then I went to Iowa State mm-hmm. in '09, and then it, you know, it took me like I graduated in 2013 with my doctorate, so it took me four four years to kind of Mm. reel it all in (laughs) sure all the extra stuff you have to do, you know? Right. When you're in all these programs, when, you know, cause you're, you're studying with Mark Ford, then you're studying with Burrett, then you're starting with Chi. How how do you see your progression of, we'll focus on Marimba because of the, that's what those uh, teachers are, are, are their primaries, but like, how do you see kind of the own progression of your playing? And, and they're, they're all three very different and in, in individual artists too. Um, interestingly, it, it, it sort of worked, it, it worked kind of naturally in that who they are as um, percussion pedagogues and artists, it was kind of like a perfect trajectory for, um, training, you know, from like that undergraduate um, green sort of stage to like the, in terms of performance to that, um, you know, experience kind of doctoral student stage of life. Uh, so, so Mark is a, is really great at, at cultivating um, like a real, a solid base of fundamentals and, and an understanding of, of like technique and, you know, how things work together with technique and playing the instrument and also exposing you, exposing me and other students to, to different repertoire, that, very different repertoire than Burrett. So that was another thing is like, I got kind of a, a nice, um, cross-section of a lot of different repertoire and also I stu- I went to the Stevens seminar for a summer and so that was another uh draw for me um from my experience but yeah and then and then Burrett has a, a, a you know obviously a diff- very different player um and, and someone so, who does an enormous amount of his own lit too yeah and right. Another, another composer performer like Ford. Um, so I, I think there was like for a lack of, of a really thought thought out way of explaining it, like with Burrett, there was kind of a study in like physically approaching the instrument. So, so at that point as a master's student, I'm, I'm sort of away from like this part of playing the instrument and I'm, and I'm like more, focused on this part of playing the instrument, like the, so the you're, whole lot. 
your hand, like it's away, getting away from your hands and more into the kind of what your entire body does. Yeah. And I, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast, so I should like an audio podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) An audio podcast. Right. Right. So yeah, away from the, 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 the inner and intricacies of, of your arms and hands and that sort of motion technique to, to like, how is it the full body? And kind of watching him play was a, very much a study in that, you know, because he has very, very defined sort of ways physically that he approaches the instrument and, um, and then figuring out how to incorporate that into my artistry and just, just sort of take it all in and then let it, let it sit around, sit there for a while and kind of mix in and then how does that come out? in, uh, in my artistry, um, as an individual performer. And then, um, she, I would say again, just kind of, um, for a, a lack of sort of a good way to explain it, it was more, it was more of like a cerebral or cerebral approach to the instrument. Cause at that point as a doctoral student, I had already been out in the real world for four years. Like I, I left my master's graduated and then spent four years freelancing and then went back for my doctorate. And then she came the second year. So, you know, I wasn't like tripping up on technical stuff or, or that it was more of like, okay, let's, let's really like dig into the um, cerebral part of being a soloist and approaching all this different kind of music and like learning lots of music because the first thing I did with Shi'i was I was preparing for this the world marimba competition in Stuttgart and I had a five-hour lesson with her on um, like eight or ten different pieces of music like we just it was just like non-stop five hours we didn't we broke for like four minutes to go to the restroom and like get a sip of water and come back. So that, that was before school started. Cause I was going to Germany for the competition, like the first week of school. So we got together and we just like tore through all the rap. And so that, you know, it's, it was that kind of training, like that I, that I still draw on all the time because when I'm prepping, you know, typically in my weeks and months of, this concert season I'll have like a solo program in the works and then HMQ coming up. And then this, you know, there's sort of like this ongoing Rolodex of, of concert programs that I have to keep, um, you know, just keep, uh, working towards. And so she was very, very instrumental in helping me kind of navigate that like quantity of music. Particularly with, I don't know about if Ford does as much playing as the others, but I know that you know with people like Burrett and Chee, you're you're around someone who is who has to have like lit in their hands twenty four seven, like yeah, and so you get that model too. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. And 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 at the you know in the early two thousands and for the next twenty years, Ford was you know, very actively performing. Um, I, I don't know that he's performing as much. None of us are performing as much these days, but like with Burrett, 
you know, I remember this, this period of time he was playing velocities and then, you know, he, uh, he was working up Mirage for his Eastman audition. You know, there was all these periods where I would just hear, you hear him practicing all the time and she the same way. Um, and then they're off on the road for a little while and, you know, you're like, okay, cool. I get an extra week to like work on my solo <laughs> before they, before our lesson again, right. you know, kind of stuff. So you're exactly right. Cause that, that was, that's been sort of subconsciously a part of like navigating my career as well. It's like, I always have to kind of have things in the works and ready. We'll get to part two with Matthew Coley next week, so stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2012 book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Parent, and Lead, by author, professor, speaker, researcher, and social worker, Brene Brown. I was first made aware of Brene Brown from her appearance on the Mark Maron podcast, the WTF a show I reference quite often, and this was from sometime in 2019. I've since been made aware of her from her appearances on other podcasts and TED Talks and other items as they've come about. More recently, when I was at the Missouri Bandmasters Association conference last month, I caught a presentation on mental health in the arts from Baylor University band director Eric Wilson and his wife, social worker Lynette Wilson where they referenced a lot of Brene Brown's work, particularly from this book. When I got the chance to talk to Eric after their presentations, I mentioned that I was reading that book right now, and we connected over that. Daring Greatly connects to many parts of our daily lives and makes those connections easy to see and hopefully to carry out. One important side note that came up regularly throughout the book is a two-pronged approach for this material that takes place in Brown's professional and personal life. She did rigorous research throughout her career to make scientific sense of things that she was seeing as a social worker and talking to many folks. Then she was able to use that information from her research to make her own life better and improve her relationships with her husband and her kids and the people she works with. Doing those two things gave her the credibility to present her work. The primary focus of the book is on vulnerability. Brown's thesis is essentially that vulnerability is not weakness, but the most courageous thing that we can do as human beings, particularly as it means being honest about ourselves and what we're doing. This is frequently a good personal reminder that when I allow myself to be vulnerable in situations, the aftermath is usually an improvement You just have to allow yourselves to get started. There's a lot here about shame, how we shield ourselves from our emotions and lose out, and how we can improve our family relationships and our work life. There are worksheets, appendices, websites, and a clearness of language that makes the reading very engaging. Plus, there's some well-placed swear words throughout, and I always appreciate that. If you're not familiar with her work, Get to know Brene Brown and her many books and her podcasts 
including Daring Greatly. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with Matthew Coley. Until then. Thank you.